If you're going to follow along in your Bible, uh, I would invite you to open up to the book of John, chapter 2. The book of John is where we're going to be. Uh, John is easy to find. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, if that helps you track it down. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, chapter 2. What we've done as a church is that we began this year, uh, and we began looking at the gospel according to John. Uh, We looked at, uh, we just opened it up, John, chapter 1, verse 1, and we began walking through the gospel of John together as a church. And the goal of that, like, why did we begin at the beginning of a book? Well, the goal of that is like, what is John? Who is John? And what we know about John is that he is one of Jesus's disciples. He's one of Jesus's friends. He has his flaws. He has his weaknesses, but he knew Jesus face to face. He was there and as an eyewitness for all of the high points of Jesus's ministry. And what's great about that is that he writes a story, uh, what we call a gospel, but it's meant to be a history book of this is what what Jesus was like when I met him. This is what I know about him. This is what I saw him do. And what what we found as a church, and maybe you find this in your own community, your own circles, is that people who, uh, when they talk about faith, when they talk about Jesus, there's a lot of opinions out there, and they're all in kind of conflict with each other. People say different things about Jesus and about God and about faith, some positive that sound too good to be true, some are real critical, like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a Jesus that anybody would follow. And there's just a lot of different opinions along the way. And I think having those conversations is fun. I think it's good. I think it'd be helpful. But we need to be careful that we're not basing our faith on the opinions of people who never met Jesus. What we want to do as a church is look at someone who met Jesus and see what he saw and just just weigh it out. Like we just choose at the end of our time with John, we're just weighing it out. Like if this is true, if what John is saying about Jesus is true, he is worth following. He is worth devoting my entire life to. I'm just compelled that this thing is so true that I'm going to hitch my trailer onto it. I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. If at the end of our walk, you're like, I heard what John said about Jesus. I feel like I have a good look at Jesus, but I'm still not compelled to follow him. Then we've accomplished this one thing together. We've got a good look at the Jesus of history, the Jesus that is of scripture. And so we we started that back in January. And I said at the beginning, if you were here back then, I said at the beginning, like, we're going to be spending a lot of time in John. We're going to spend a few weeks doing this, and then we're going to go away, and then we're going to come back. And so I'm I'm just going to say that that was season one. Like, okay, that was season one of John. We binge watched it together. We got through those first five or six weeks together uh, of John. And then it kind of went on a hiatus. You know, when you're watching your favorite show, he's like, come on, why don't don't you come back? Uh, And we're going to begin season two today of John, but uh, just like whenever your favorite show comes back on, you have that recap montage bit. You know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, nobody watches TV. Uh, we're, we're, like, we're, we're in Amish country right now, but uh, you may have heard that there is a TV that exists, and when they come back out of a season, there's this moment where they're like, where, where have your heroes been this whole time? So I just want to I want to open with just like two minutes of just like, here's where we were in John, and if you missed that, if you weren't here for all of the weeks of that, I would encourage you to do one of two things. One, just like set aside some time this week and go read the first two chapters of John. It's not that much. It's just a few pages. Uh, and really soak in what John is making the case for. Or two, if you fill up to it and you have a little bit more time, all of our sermons are on podcasts and YouTubes and the Facebooks and all the other internet-y things. You, you, could, you could go find these messages and just see where we were. But, but we begin in John chapter 1 with Jesus. Uh, John just says that Jesus is the Word. That, that before all of creation, before God said, let there be light, the Word was God. 
God and the Word was, was with God. John begins his book in this huge, grandiose moment of he has come to believe that Jesus is the Word made flesh, that Jesus is God. The way that John would tell the story, if John were to write the book of Genesis, he would say, and God said, let there be light. And by the way, it was my friend Jesus's voice that would have been heard saying, let there be light. He believes that much about Jesus. And what, what he said about Jesus at the very beginning is that this Word is that Jesus is the foundation upon which we build everything else. He's, he's, the, he's the foundation upon where all of your hopes can be. He's the foundation upon where you can bring all of your cares, that Jesus is the main point, and he chose to become flesh. And so the, the case is, the rest of John is trying to, like, if that's true, let me kind of prove it to you. This is what I found about John. But he gives us his conclusion at the beginning, and that is this, is that to know Jesus is to have life. If John is right about who Jesus is, it's not just a good idea. Jesus isn't just someone who makes you smarter or a better parent or a better person or a better spouse. All of those things are true, but it's so much more than that. If John is right about Jesus, getting that right is the most important thing you can do in your life. And so John says that Jesus is the word. And then we're introduced to a guy named John the Baptist, a different John. Uh, John the Baptist, he's a fascinating guy who he believes his job is to prepare the way for this Messiah, this Jesus that he doesn't, you know, hasn't quite made it on the scene yet. I'm just going to convince everybody that he's on his way. And John was really, really successful. John the Baptist had a huge following until one day he sees face to face the Messiah. He sees Jesus and he is incredibly comfortable being like all of this fame, all of this power. It was meant for him. Because why? Because he's the main point. I'm not the main point. I'm not the founder. I'm not the word, John the Baptist would say, that man is. So John the Baptist is the first person who begins to believe the same things about Jesus. And he just points, like, that's, that's the man worth following. Then the third week, we see that Jesus starts to collect his disciples. And that was fascinating. It's the first time we see Jesus's voice in the gospel of John. And he starts talking to people. And what we saw time and time again, after we meet these disciples, people you may have heard about, Nathaniel, Philip, Peter, you know, people that, that are they're throughout the Bible. They, they do stuff. Uh, we see that not all of them like knew based on the rumors what Jesus was. Some of them were doubting. Some of them were skeptical. But every time one of these men spent time with Jesus, listened to Jesus on his own terms, every one of them became compelled. Not only is this a man worth following, that this might be the actual son of God. Every one of them, when they spent time with Jesus, heard what he really said, turned their life and followed him. And so the, the encouragement that I want to make to all of us as we kind of recap that first season is, are you hooking on to the rumors that the community and the culture are saying about Jesus, all the mixed messages, all the TikTok videos? Or have you done the work to actually just like look at what people said about him that knew him and listened to him? Because those who knew him and listened to him, when they went to him and took him at his word, they found him to be incredibly compelling. And then big, big Jesus flexes happen after that. We have the wedding at Cana, uh, where he turns water into wine. Fascinating story of a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't matter in the cosmic universe. And it turns out that Jesus is really comfortable with you and I bringing him all of our problems and just laying them at his feet. And then the last week of the season that we began with is that Jesus flips those tables, which is just one of my most exciting moments. I, one time in my life, I would love to be so mad that I flipped a table and everybody was like, yeah, that was awesome. I think I will get a I think that's what's going to happen. I think you will call the cops if I just got mad and flipped the card table. What we see is that when Jesus flips the tables and he cleanses the temple is that he's doing everything he can to remove the obstacles that we have created, keeping people from seeing who God is really like. 
And we spent an entire, I don't know, two months after that trying to identify obstacles. The point of all of this is John has spent his first two chapters trying to give us a picture, a clear picture of who Jesus really is. And so what do we want to do for the next several weeks? We're going to, we're going to spend some time in John together. Uh, I've planned it out, I think for, I think if I remember right, six weeks. So we've got about two months of, of this and we're going to meet people along the way and, and they're going to get to know Jesus. We're going to see what the responses to Jesus are like. We're going to meet a guy named Nicodemus. We're going to meet the woman at the well. All of that is in future weeks, but we want to answer this one question and that is, will Jesus really accept us? If Jesus is as good as John says he is, if he's as good as all the rumors say that he is, I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, I'm not nearly that good. I'm not nearly like equal with the perfection that Jesus has. And my experience has been is that with people, that if you're not kind of in the same socioeconomic class as them, if you're not in the same neighborhood as them, if you don't kind of dress like them, talk like them, act like them, if you're too far different, people don't accept one another. Is that your experience as well? That's my experience. And so the question is, is that if Jesus is so supremely good and so supremely perfect, would he accept someone who is far below that like me? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. It's really, really good news, but we're going we're gonna to kind of work through this for a few weeks. Will Jesus really accept us? Does he really know what I'm like, or does he believe the, the rumors that I try to make about myself? If you have your Bible, I'm in chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 23. I think we'll have it up behind us. And so what we have is uh, John is going to give us these transition statements. Jesus has just flipped the tables in Jerusalem, and, and John is getting ready to unpack the rest of the characters, the Nicodemus and all of that. And he gives these just three verses of just transition. He says this. He says, Now when he, that's Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then I feel like, like Beethoven does dun, 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 dun. Like it's a real ominous ending right here. Jesus, he has all of this fame. He has all of this like momentum going in a direction. Any social influences in here know like how momentum works. Like when you have, I'm not, I'm not a social influencer, but my understanding is that if you make a TikTok video, you make a YouTube video and it skyrockets, you got to crank out a lot more content because you got to ride that wave of like that, that fame, that reputation. Maybe, maybe you do that at work. You had the one good report. You had the, the big thing, like you came through for the company, you want to start like making your angles at that moment. You, you got to strike while the striking is hot. Jesus flips tables in Jerusalem. People are believing in his name left and right. And it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people. He slowed way, way down after that. He's such a backwards person from the way that we think. Why does Jesus not entrust himself to them? Well, he says, because he knows all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. There are two reasons I think that Jesus just doesn't move the needle forward right away. Because, because if the goal right here is to, I'm Jesus, I have to get my message out as fast and as loud as possible, and I have all of this fame, then I need to do what I can to just start like spread faster and faster and go more and more. And Jesus slows down. I think there are two reasons for that. One is this, uh, the hour has not yet come. In the book of John, uh, this, this phrase is repeated over and over. Some version of this phrase is repeated over and over out of Jesus' mouth. My hour is not yet come. 
If you were with us when we went over the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine, Mary goes to Jesus like, Jesus, you got to do something. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. That theme is all over the book of John, that Jesus is really, really, really comfortable knowing when it's right to do a thing and when it's not. He is more in tune with the timetable of God than you and I are. He knows what his father asks of him, and he knows what the sequence of events are. And when Jesus sees an opportunity to maybe go a little bit faster, maybe take a shortcut, maybe get to the finish line a little bit better, maybe Jesus would have even thought like, hey, I can kind of improve on the father's plan. Jesus knows. It's not time to. This kind of echoes and mirrors the temptation of Jesus. Uh, if you've been around church, you've probably heard that Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without food, and he's kind of hungry, you know, kind of hangry. Anybody get hangry? Anybody's worst decisions are made like whenever you haven't eaten for a day and your blood sugar is low? Yeah, yeah. So at the end of this you know, month and some change time of Jesus being hungry, the devil's like, hey, I've got this great idea. Uh, Jesus, you want, you want all the fame? You want all the fortune? You want all of this? I'll give it all to you right here, right now. No cross, no work, no suffering. You can have everything that you came to have. And Jesus looked the devil in the eyes like, no, I'm, I'm not because it's not time. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Plus, it's the devil. So, like, you know, you don't, you don't trust the devil at moments like that. Jesus is really, really comfortable with time. If you uh, plan to embark on a study on the book of John, like as part of your personal study, I just want to give you a little Bible study tip right here. A lot of people see this theme of the hour and the time that Jesus talks about as a major theme in John, so much so that they divide the book into two main sections. The first section is called the book of hours or the book of time, uh, and that's going to be John chapter 1 through John chapter 12. Uh, and as we go through that over and over again, Jesus has opportunities to fast forward the mission. And he's like, it's not time. I, I'm just not going to. Uh, but then after that, beginning in chapter 13, it's like the hour has come for my glory. And so they say the second half of the, they may call it like the book of glory. I've heard it said, um, that's a really good way to divide that. And when we get there as a church, you're going to hear the tone change in John. When Jesus gets in action mode, he starts marching head first towards the cross. Why, why do I bring all of this like up in a, in a sermon to, to Americans today? Uh, because here's what I know about Christians, American Christians specifically. We really stink at slowing down. We rush everywhere we go. We pray a prayer and we're mad at 1230 the same day. It's been four hours, God. Where are you at? Okay, I'm ready for you to do a thing. I've been praying for that for four hours, God, you know, and we were like, well, you know what I can do? You know, I can help God out. I can, I can speed things along. Let me just tell you, every problem in the Bible from good people comes when they, when they try to help God out on his plans. It seems to be the only person I could think of off the top of my head that someone who would pause and be like, it's just not time for that yet, is Jesus himself because he knows the hour isn't there. I just want to warn you, if you're praying a thing, if you're hoping a thing, if you're waiting for God to show up on a thing, keep at it. Don't try to shortcut it. Do the work that's necessary because when the hour comes, God's going to flex. And he's going to take care of what he wants to take care of. He doesn't need our help so much. He needs our obedience. So the first reason that I think Jesus doesn't entrust himself to people is that his hour hasn't come. It's a big theme. The second reason that he doesn't trust himself to people is because what John says here in verse 24, he knew all people. 
He knew what was in their heart. What an ominous statement that is. He knows what's in your heart. It's kind of like, he knows what you did last summer, right? It's like, it's like golly, man, it's dark. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and on Jesus's journal. Like he knows all things. He knows what is in us. Jesus knew what was in the heart of people and he didn't entrust his mission to people with hearts like that. And the reason that you and I read a statement like that is super ominous is because if you're like me, you also know what's in people. You at least know what's in you. You know that there are the good parts of you, the parts of you that make it on Instagram and social media, the parts of you that you talk about at work, the parts of you that you're really proud of of the conversations that you have. But you know all those things that you're just like, I really hope nobody finds that out. All those pieces of your character, all those flaws, all those areas of pride and arrogance and weakness and shame and guilt, we have buckets of it. And we know it's in us. And what John just said is that Jesus fully knows people. And he, because of what he knows about people, chooses not to entrust his mission to them. This is great news for you. <laughs> You're like, no, it sounds scary. I don't want Jesus to know. I'm sorry, he already knows. He already knows all the shame. He knows the, the, the ignorances. He knows the, the places of weakness. He knows the trauma. He knows the, the childhood abuse. He knows all the things that are in our heart. And he does not entrust his mission to humans. All that pressure that you and I feel to have the world on our shoulders, all that pressure you and I feel to be the perfect mom and dad, to be the perfect spouse, to be the perfect employee, to be perfect at everything, Jesus already knows you're not perfect. Jesus may be the only figure that we can point to who says he doesn't add to you these extra measures. The universe isn't on your shoulders. You don't have to wear that burden. I think that's why Jesus says things like, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are perfect, and I will give you more work. That's the world's mantra. Come to me, all who are perfect, and I'll knock you down a peg. Come to me, all who have it put together, and I will celebrate you and I will lift you up. And all of us look in the mirror and be like, I know what's in me. I can't trust myself with all that. And Jesus politely whispers, not judgingly, but politely whispers, I know what's in you too. Come to me. I'll give you rest. You know, Jesus, he, he knows what is in people. He knows like what's in her heart. He knows all of the good stuff that's in me. Let's, let's kind of, let's stop looking in the mirror for a second. Let's just look out a window somewhere into the culture. Have you ever like had a moment where you just look at like a news report or someone calls you and be like, you'll never guess what so-and-so did. Or, or whatever, somebody says something and you think to yourself this phrase, what is wrong with people? You ever had that? Surely all of us have had this moment, like what is wrong with, what is wrong with America? What is wrong with all of these people? I don't know. I don't know how people get into this position, but what John is making the case for is that Jesus does know. Jesus knows what is wrong with people. Jesus knows what is deep down in all of culture. It seems to be like one of Jesus' secrets to, to navigating the Nicodemus story that we're going to look at next week and the woman at the well the week after. And all, like every time Jesus talks to these people, he meets them exactly where they're at. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't have like this one blanket statement that he begins every time? 
I've been caught with that. I, I'm an introvert, and so I don't always know how to interact with people on a social level or a human level. And so uh, in the hallway, I've been caught repeating the same joke coming down the hall. Why is that? Because I'm really nervous, and I'm just trying to be personable, and I know that jokes happen, and, and it helps people. And so I'll make the same joke, and someone will be like, you just said that to me. Like, I'm sorry, I forgot we talked. Because I don't meet people always on individual levels when I'm stressed out. But Jesus, on the other hand, he talks to the woman at the well and he talks about her marriages and her life. He talks to Nicodemus incredibly intelligently because Nicodemus is like PhD level genius. And then he talks to like blind Bart from last week and it's just some guy who's on the side of the road meets him right where he's at. Jesus, he knows what is in us. Therefore, he knows how to meet us right where we're at. Jesus has, we would consider it like a PhD in psychology at this moment. You know, they didn't study psychology back then, right? But Jesus really understands the human condition super, super well. It's one of the, it's one of the most compelling things, I think, about Jesus for any unbeliever. Is like, he really seems to understand how to talk to people. And this really brings me to something that confuses me just in general, just a blanket statement. I'm confused on, on both sides of the aisle. To, to Christians to believers, to followers of Jesus, I'm really confused by those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then when he says a thing, when he challenges us, we just kind of sit back and we point, we're like, look at Jesus saying really smart things. Man, that's, that guy's great. We, we, we're really good at agreeing with Jesus about things and we, we sit a lot and we wait. Or we, we point to him and be like, you guys should listen to Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I'm telling you to forgive your enemies. I'm telling you to love others. I'm telling you to go the extra mile. And you're like, that's really good for that unbeliever to do. I can't wait till they do that. And Jesus is like, no, we who believe that he's the son of God sometimes are really slow in obeying him. And then we flip it around. There's this other group of people that like, they're just not yet convinced that Jesus is the son of God. And yet they're really compelled by the moral teachings and what he has. I had a boss one time, I talked to him and, and he wasn't a believer, but he brought his kids to church. And I asked him like, why? Like, why do you make your kids go to church? And he's like, I want my kids to grow up with morals and Christian values and things. I'm like, that's a genius. Except like, where does Jesus have that level of authority? How does he know these things? Either he has a PhD in psychology and he understands cognitive behavioral therapy and all the other like psychological disciplines, or he's actually the creator of the universe. I, I don't know how Jesus can be so right and not be God. And so for those, I'm just compelled, like, why agree with him if we don't believe the basis for it? I'm, I'm far more comfortable with the people who are in the in-between. They're like, you know, I'm, I just don't know yet. I, I, I'm, I'm willing, I'm exploring, I'm, I'm checking this out. So what we're left with is Jesus knows. He knows what's in you. He knows what's in these people. That's why he doesn't entrust this mission with them. He knows what's in people in general and in the culture. The question is, if Jesus knows all those things, does he accept us? Will he accept people who are that far off the mark? Well, it turns out like the answer is already in our verses. In verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Just a quick aside, uh, they didn't believe in his name because they heard like a newspaper report about Jesus. They saw Jesus in action. They saw the movement and they're like, that must be the son of God. So it's many, not all, many believed in his name. And so the question is like, okay, so they believe him, but does he accept them? If he knows that they're broken, if he knows what's in their heart, if he knows all their sin, shame, guilt, 
insecurities, all the areas of brokenness that they don't want to post on their Instagram feed, does Jesus accept them? And John's already given us the answer. If you rewind with me uh, just to the beginning of John, John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, so we just read about people who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did Jesus accept them? John's already said at the beginning of his book, but those who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be sons of God. Real quick Bible study tip. If you're trying to dig into the Bible and like sometimes a verse doesn't make sense, let me just tell you, when, when an author like John introduces a, uh, a concept like believe in his name, that's real kind of unique to John, believe in his name, and then he uses it in other places of the book, he's hyperlinking all of those stories together. And so when John just says they believed in his name in chapter two, he already expects you to have read chapter one where he said what God does when people believe in the name of Jesus. And that is he gives them the right to become children of God. Here, here's, here's the story of God. God is a holy and righteous father, perfect in every way. In him, there is no shadow of wrong. And then he creates people who have immense dark shadows of wrong. How do we have a right relationship with our father? To those who believe in the name of Jesus, he has given the right to be adopted back as sons and daughters. That is the answer. Oh, does that mean though that I have to like, I have to get things perfect and I have to get things right? No, no, no. Believe in his name. It's, it didn't say, and they saw the signs and they saw the wonders that Jesus was doing. They're like, man, I really got to stop cussing and I'm going to put down the marbles and I'm going to, I'm going to treat my wife better. And when I get these five things right, then I turn to Jesus and then he accepts me. No, no, no. The believing comes first. The transformation comes second. Does that make sense? Where, where, the, where many people get it wrong, they hear the message of Jesus and they say, I need to get my life together so I can earn what he's offering. I can live up to his standard. You never will. The believing comes first. You believe in the name of Jesus. He gives us the right to become sons and daughters of God. And then as children of God, he starts transforming us through our obedience in following him. I think about, um, I heard, I heard I heard this, uh, I think it was in a counseling environment. I've heard, I use it a lot now, but I think, I think it was in a counseling environment that I heard it. Uh, this idea of uh, driving down the car. I used to be a uh, social worker, which put me on the road all the time. I was driving somewhere around 25,000 miles a year. So I'm just all over Texas, East Texas. And like when you're doing that, you're, you're spending a lot of time in your vehicle. It's like your life. It's your house. It's your, and so I'm driving and I, I got to eat. So I pull over, I get fast food. I'm driving down the road. I'm eating my food. And then, you know, I don't have a, trash service in my truck. So I just kind of put it off to the side, right? And you know, I put it in the passenger seat or I might, you know, throw something in the back with the plans to get it later, but I'm busy. I get home late that night. So the next day, a little bit of that trash is left, right? You understand? I'm not a slob, but it happens. Okay. And then, and then it's another stressful day and uh, I, I eat on the road and I have my paperwork and I have my box and I have all, and I have more stuff. I'm just kind of throwing in the back. And then someone's like, Hey, Jesse, can you give me a ride somewhere? I'm like, no, I've got all this trash in my passenger seat. I've got to clean my truck out before, you know, you can, you can ride. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll use your car, you know, something like that. And then let's say, uh, and this actually happened. I'm on my way to a family in Trinity, uh, and I hydroplaned along the way and my truck turned sideways in the road, 
Trees are passing in front of me and it turns back. And all of this debris that I've been like putting off to the side is now like slammed up into the front, right? It's because it's there. Until I deal with it, it's there. And we have this belief about God that like we have to keep the, the inside of our life immaculate or he won't accept us. And that's not true. He will accept you. You can pull over at any moment. He will accept you. But at the same time, he's like, hey, let's start dealing with some of the debris that you've been carrying with you from your childhood, Jesse. Let's start dealing with some of the debris about that one time that that boss said that one thing. Let's deal with it because I'm not satisfied with you just sitting in that. And too many Christians are just like, I believe that he's the son of God. I've confessed my sins. I can't wait to get to heaven one day. And we're just sitting, getting slapped in the face with all the debris that's there. And the Lord is just like, I'm willing to work with that. I know what's in you, Jesse. Let's work on that. Let's believe in his name. So I just want to close with this thought is that because of Jesus, you are really fully known inside and out. He knows the public parts of you and he knows the private parts of you. He knows the parts of you that are still a secret to yourself right now. You're so successful at hiding from them. You don't even know that they're in you. And yet he is fully aware inside and out. And because of Jesus, he's willing to save you and give you the right to become a child of God. And you say, Jesse, why would you say that? That doesn't make any sense because John says that. The Jesus that John knows and he describes as a Jesus who accepts people that he fully knows is broken, and then he transforms them. Peter wasn't perfect. He transformed him. John wasn't perfect. Nathaniel, these people that started following Jesus, they weren't perfect. And then when they followed him, they became better people. Believing causes transformation, not the other way around. Stop trying to impress God before you just trust him. Trust him. And then let him transform you on the way out. When my youngest, uh, Max, he's now uh, five. If you ask him, he's six, but he's not even close. He's got like five months left. Uh, but uh, he just wants to be six so bad. And, and okay. But when he was born, uh, it was right after Harvey. So he's in the hospital being born as Harvey is coming onto the mainland. We're, we leave the, just to set this up, we leave the hospital like two days earlier than we should out of the NICU. The NICU nurse is like, hey, listen, I can't discharge you, but there's a big hurricane coming in. If you take him and walk away, we won't stop you. So, no. Yeah, good medical advice. And so we took him and, and we left. It worked out though. He's doing great. Um, we're, we're, we're at home. Uh, he loves music. We find out that he can, he can only fall asleep to music. And so we just play music and uh, we, we let him play. I, I can't sing. Uh, and so I can't sing the music to him. I could beatbox a little. He liked that. Um, and this one song would come on uh, by Torn Wells. I don't know if you've heard him. He's kind of like the Christian Bruno Mars. Uh, he's got like an R&B kind of a, a vibe to him. Very high pitch. I don't know. Mu- music people, is that soprano or something? Whatever this note is, that's him. That's, I, no, I can't even get close. And he had this song called Known. And Max, he, he, he's, he's three months old. He, he doesn't know the words, uh, but he liked the sound. And he would just like melt in your arms. He'd be having a fussy fit, you know, whatever, gas or whatever. And it's just like when the song would come on, he would just, so we played it all the time. Because any parent knows, like if you find the secret song that unlocks the child's calmness, you're like, yeah. And the song, the song called Known is about a God who fully knows you and still loves you. Here's, here's some of the lyrics. I printed it out as, as I prepared. Uh, I won't sing it, but it says, it's so unusual, it's frightening. You see right through the mess inside me and you call me out to pull me in 
You tell me I can start again and I don't need to keep on hiding. I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go no matter what I do. And it's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known and loved by you. It's so like you to keep pursuing. It's so like me to go astray. But you guard my heart with your truth, a kind of love that's bulletproof, and I surrender to your kindness. And then the lyric goes, oh, so I don't know what that note is, but it has oh written there. It's, it's a catchy tune with a deep truth. You're Jesus. He knows everything about you. He's willing to accept you, to continue pursuing you. And the kind of love that he has is a kind of love that isn't just like, hey, let's stay in your mess. The kind of love that he has is, I accept you in your mess. You're ready to start doing something about it. I will call you towards scary things of obedience. They're scary because you would have done them already if it weren't scary. But his ways are so much better. And with gentle uniqueness to your specific fragileness, he meets you where you're at and he calls you forward. He doesn't entrust his mission to us because he knows what's in our hearts, but his mission is that he transforms our hearts. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So coming in the next few weeks, we're going to start looking at how Jesus is applying this to different people. If you want to go ahead and read ahead, uh, we'll be chapter three, four, and five in the next few weeks. Let me pray uh, for us, and we'll be dismissed. My challenge to you, trust in Jesus. Lean into the fact that you are a child and a daughter of the King, and let him transform you. Pray with me. Father, this morning, we come to you. Um, we thank you for, for a message like this. We thank you for your word, uh, because this is not something that we intuitively know. We wouldn't have guessed this about you because all of our examples of what people are like and what our examples of authority are like is um, lacking. Uh, we, we, we have so much pressure to be perfect, and yet your word is that you know that we're not and that you'll accept us. I pray, Lord, for us in this room, that no matter where we're at on the spectrum, if we've been following you for a while, Lord, give us give us one more step of faithfulness to surrender that one more piece of brokenness, that one more piece of ugliness, to just trust you with it, to lay it at your feet, and to be healed from it. I pray for those of us in the room who are just, you know, they're compelled that this is this is incredible, um, but maybe not yet willing to, to trust. I, I pray, Father, that we would begin to explore you, to look at you, and uh, to to know you more, that you would reveal yourself uh, to to all of us. We love you. Uh, We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.